God wants to use you in the life of other people. Uh, that's hopefully maybe the second lesson you learn as a Christian. The first thing you need to learn is that God wants to have a relationship with me through Christ, and that should shock you and surprise you, but after that, we hope that you learn and understand that God wants to use you in the life of other people. I mean, guys, that's the most normal, average, everyday story that I've ever heard. A guy named uh, Austin meets a guy named Josh and sees him and says, hey, you can sit with us and the story unfolds and unravels from there. How do you figure out who God wants to use you in their life? How do you kind of figure that out? Who has God put in front of you, right? There's certain people that only you see. I mean, I'm not saying they're invisible to everybody else, but you know what I mean. Like only you really see them. There's certain needs that only you notice. There's certain problems that only bother you. Guess what? Those are your problems, right? Those are your problems you should do something about. And, and what I love about this story is it's just so simple. See, if we could just talk for just a minute, all of us here, if you're new, guest, visitor, welcome. I just want to kind of have a conversation with those who call Two Cities Church home for a minute. What we're trying to do here, whatever here is, like on Sunday morning or Saturday night or Sunday night is what's called organizational hospitality, right? You've heard of hospitality. That's a biblical virtue and value. And you know all the verses that talk about that. And you normally think about your home, but we think about the church. Like what would it look like for us as a church to practice hospitality. Here's what hospitality communicates. It always communicates two things. We've been expecting you and we're ready for you. And that's all we wanna communicate. With every person here, we wanna say two things to a first time guest or a visitor. We've been expecting you, we're ready for you because why? Because God's been expecting you, God's ready for you. So if you are joining us and you're new and you're not connected yet and you're kind of on the outside, not the inside, you're part of the crowd, not really part yet of the church, let me invite you, June 2nd and 3rd is our weekender. And that's really how we tell you, hey, we've been expecting you. We don't just have a seat for you. We've got a place for you. Some of you, I know how you are. You're like, I don't want to go to something unless I know other people are going. Well, we already have over 50 people signed up for this weekender. So this is a great time at the beginning of the summer, before there's kids week, before the short-term mission trips, before all the vacations start, this is a great opportunity to get connected. So let me just pray for that. And then we're going to dive into Ephesians 3. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I just take a moment right now. And I just want to pray and thank you for the story of Josh and Austin, a very simple story of just noticing a need and doing something about it. Lord, I pray that our church would be full of servants, not critics. A servant and a critic see the same thing, but respond differently. A critic says, why hasn't somebody done something about that? And a servant says, maybe I can do something about that. Lord, I pray for just a culture of servants. I pray that what, the way that it would feel here on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Saturday night, is uh, just a spirit of hospitality, that we are excited as people are coming here. And we want them to know we are ready for them and we've been expecting them, Lord, and that you are ready for them and you're expecting them. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so for me right now in this season of my life, I've got an 11-year-old, a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and they're all playing soccer, okay? And they're all good. Okay, they're good for being 11, okay? And being nine and being six, we'll see. Uh, but it's very interesting. My nine-year-old boy, he's my oldest boy, and my middle child, uh, he loves soccer so much. And so we started to watch Messi. You know who Messi is? Okay, Messi is about to sign a contract to make $400 million a year. I'm gonna kill my guidance counselor. Okay, that's a, I mean, that's a lot of money. Uh, it's interesting, we, we went and I started watching with my son all these videos and it's interesting because he loves soccer and so what is he looking for? He's looking for the ideal. He's looking for a role model. We're all doing this, right? If I took your phone from you and that'd be uncomfortable because right, our phones are not really our phones, they're kind of like extensions of us. If I took your phone, you'd like give it back. But if I took it from you and, and, and I looked at it and I said, well, I'm gonna look and see who you're following on Instagram and on Twitter and I'm gonna go see the podcast that you're listening to and I'm gonna go look at the YouTube channels that you're subscribing to. I can tell you as an adult who your role models still are, right? I mean, this is why, right, certain women, they love to watch these moms on Instagram and it's like, this mom is perfect. 
She looks perfect, her kids are perfect, her husband's perfect, and she's got a million followers, right? It's the ideal. The ideal's hard, we need the ideal. Like you need a role model, like you can't help yourself, okay? Like you, you're gonna look to somebody. The hard thing about an ideal is an ideal gives us something to shoot for, and man, do we need that. It's like you could be more than you are, but an ideal always, without exception, an ideal always judges you as well. If a very, very stunning, abnormally gorgeous woman walks into a room, what happens? She makes every other woman insecure, and she makes every guy self-conscious. The ideal has just arrived. What happens if a very articulate, very successful, very wealthy businessman walks into a room? Every guy's like, I'm not what I could be. I'm not all that I should be. It's something to shoot for, but it simultaneously judges us. Today, Paul is going to point to himself as an ideal. Here's the conviction, guys. If you're a Christian, I know everyone in here is a Christian. Here's the conviction. You, your life, and my life should look more like Paul's. We need something to shoot for. I mean, yes, ultimately we wanna be like Jesus. I mean, put your, what would Jesus do wristband on? Okay, that's fine. But Jesus was the sinless son of God and we wanna be like him and we wanna be the, like, the most Christ-like versions of ourselves. yes and amen. But we need like sinful, fallen, human examples that are a perfect example of being imperfect, okay? And that's what Paul is. And here's what Paul's gonna do today. Paul's gonna let us into his mindset. Do you know what a mindset is? That's kind of common talk today. Everyone talks about a mindset. A mindset shapes how you see the world, right? You can go to places and you can get, bring in like a business coach and he'll say, do you have the growth mindset or the fixed mindset? Have you heard of these? So the growth mindset says, hey, you know, you could be different than you are and your life could be better than it is and things could change. And the fixed mindset says, well, <laughs> that's just who you are and that's just how it is. And so you go, well, okay, the growth mindset's better than the fixed mindset. And then other people go, well, okay, have the, have the abundance mindset, not just the scarcity mindset. And that makes sense. The, the abundance mindset is, well, there's plenty to go around and we can all win. And the scarcity mindset says, no, 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 the world is a zero sum game. You must lose for me to win. And if you're winning, that means I'm losing. Well, those are the mindsets of the world. Paul's not talking about that. Paul today has the missionary mindset. I want you to have the missionary mindset. I love missionaries. Like I love the, the missionaries who say goodbye. I was spent time with one this week. The missionaries who say goodbye to family and grandparents and cross an ocean and learn a language and give their life to a people, we ought to want to honor them. But here's the truth. Every Christian should view themselves as a missionary where they are. By the way, this is behind the scenes, if I can remove the curtain for a second. The reason we do so many short-term mission trips, right? Because it's expensive and we help subsidize them and we have, we have to organize, it's a lot of work. Why do we do a short-term mission trip? There's many reasons. One is because we, we know what happens when someone does a short-term mission trip. Let me just tell you, if you've never been on one, or if you've been on one, this is what happens. You go there, it doesn't matter where it is. It could be Dominican Republic, it could be Africa. You get there and you, about two or three days in, you start saying this to yourself, why don't I just do at home what I do here? Why don't I do at home what I'm doing here? Here I, I walk and I share the gospel and I'm explicitly a Christian and I'm thinking about lost people and everywhere I go, I'm thinking about how maybe I could tell someone about Jesus and I'm doing that when I'm in the Dominican Republic, but at home, I mean, I'm just at home. We wanna have the missionary mindset everywhere we go. So I'm, what I'm gonna to do today is I'm gonna give us six principles or six attitudes or six beliefs of a missionary mindset that arise out of the most personal section in the book of Ephesians, which is chapter three, verses one through 13. Let me show you, we'll, we'll go to the first one. Here we go, look at this, verse one. <clears throat> For this reason, I, Paul, so remember at the beginning, Paul didn't really get personal, right? At the beginning of the letter, he goes, hey guys, uh, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And then he's like, all right, enough about me. How about I, we'll talk about you and Jesus. But now he's coming back to tell us more about himself. Look, he goes, for this reason, I, Paul, look at this, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's not gonna say I'm a prisoner of Caesar 
or of Nero or of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, but he's in prison. A prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay. The first principle is the principle that God has put you where you are on purpose. God has placed you where you are on purpose. We see this with Paul. If Paul can see purpose in prison, can you see purpose in the career you don't love maybe? Can you see purpose in being a mom to two crazy kids, right? Because here's what's happening here, by the way. Paul wants us to know he's in prison, but he waits for a while to tell them. So you're getting this letter, right? This is how it worked. Like it would be sent to like a home church and these letters were passed around and like almost no one's literate. So like the one literate person goes, guys, we got a letter from Paul. Okay, he says, God loved us before the foundation of the world. Oh, that's great. Okay, so we were enemies and now we're reconciled. Um, guys, bad news. Paul's in the slammer. Paul's in prison. This is the first time Paul's gonna tell him he's in prison. We knew that, I told you that week one, this is a prison epistle. They didn't know Paul's in prison. They get a third of the way through the letter, like, oh my goodness. You, we would have thought, Paul, with this high theology, I would have thought that you were like at some ivory tower or at like some spiritual retreat. Like I picture you like sitting next to the ocean and, and like just writing high theology. I didn't know you were chained to a Roman guard while you wrote this. Paul tells us that we can have purpose in every place. Now, this is hard on us. Here's why this is hard for us, because a lot of times we don't like where we are. Or you look at your life and you go, this isn't where I thought I would be, right? I didn't think I'd still be single. This isn't where I thought I would be. Some of you go, I wanted to work in Charlotte and Raleigh and I ended up in Winston-Salem. I tried to go to Greenville, but I couldn't get a job. So here I am, I'm still in Winston-Salem. You're here on purpose. God has placed you where you are on purpose. This is what theologians call a theology of place. So often what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to the next season of our life and we don't realize that God has something right now for us in this season. You don't realize, this is just how life is, you don't realize how important every season of your life is until it's over. Like I didn't realize how special it was to be in college. What a unique season to be single, to have so much discretionary time, to have a, such an environment to learn, to be that close to that many people my age. I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are like, that's the best seven years of my life. <laughs> well, it was four for me, but it was, it was just an incredible time. And what, here's what happens. When you, get, when you get on the other side of a season, you realize it's gone. It's gone. I'll never live in a dorm again. Thank God. But, you know, but no, you're like, that, that season is just over. There was a season where Margie and I, we, we had this great apartment right next to downtown Greensboro. We could walk in, we didn't have kids yet, and we just had all these friends and all these relationships, and that season is gone. Where has God placed you? You just need to, I mean, not right now out loud, but like you just need to like say it, like God placed me here, like here I am, I'm the dad of three kids, and I, I'm a banker, I'm a lawyer. I mean, Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and then wherever you are, be all there. This is not something you need to do, this is something you need to wake up to. It's like, well, you're, you don't have to move. You're already there. It's like wherever you are. Let me give you three things that maybe help you be more where you are. What, what if you were just a local? I'm not saying that because I'm trying to be like a cool iGen, Gen Z, like shop local and all that. No. I mean like, what if like you went to the same barber or you went to the same barista or you ate at the same restaurants and you built relationships with the waiters and the waitresses and what if you were a local at the coffee shop and You'd be surprised how much impact you can have by just showing up and being there and being invested and involved. Secondly, what if you just went on walks? You know, it's interesting what they say, air conditioning plus garages plus back porches plus fences have done to us. Some of us, we never see our neighbors and they never see us, right? 
We just pop into the garage, hit the button, go inside, and we're in our air conditioner, heated home. If we want to go outside, we go out the back where no one can see us. What would happen if you were just present in your neighborhood, not in a weird way, but just by walking around? Who might God put in front of you? And then what does it look like for you to belong? It's like, you know, the Bible says to be in the world and not of the world. And Christians are really good at going, hey, do not be of the world. It's like, dude, as much as it's a command not to be of the world, it's a command to be in the world, which means you have to belong somewhere. Where do you belong? I mean, I'm glad that you're here and we want you to belong at our church, but like, where else do you belong? Like the why? For the summer, for us, it's the pool. It's like, man, I'm, I'm a part of that pool. It, for me, I'm realizing in this season, it's gonna be my kids and their sports. Like I belong, like I'm a dad of kids who play sports and most of my missionary endeavors and my evangelistic relationships are going to be to the parents of the kids my kids play soccer with or swim with. Okay, that's the, that's the easy one, that's the fun one, that's the like, wake up and see God has placed you where you are on purpose. Secondly, not as fun, you have to be willing to suffer. Now we don't like to suffer, but I'll show you this here, look here. Turn on me the same verse, we'll just reread it and see suffering in it, I mean it's already built in there, you can see it. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I, I love this. Okay, guys, hey, look, uh, bad news. Paul's in prison. Are you serious? Why is he in prison? Because of us. Do you see that? Why is Paul suffering? I know the Sunday school answer. Maybe you know the Sunday school answer, right? The Sunday school answer is for Jesus. That's always the right answer. That's always the ultimate answer. But that's not what Paul says there. He'll say that other places. Other places, he'll go, guys, I'm suffering for Jesus. Do you see what he's saying here? He says, I'm suffering for you. We don't like to suffer, right? Now, here, listen, Christians are not masochists. We don't pursue suffering, but First Peter says we should not be surprised by it. We should not spend, as most of us do, our entire lives trying to avoid it happening even in the least. Guys, we are soft. I hate to tell you as your pastor, I am domesticated. I sleep with three pillows, okay? <laughs> They have to be Tempur-Pedic. I mean, that's just, I have a certain type, like I have, I have ratings of mineral water and how quality I think it is. What's wrong with my heart? I'm soft. We're not used to suffering. Here's what Paul says. I don't, I do suffer for Jesus. He says, I really suffer for other people. I love other people. I've been thinking, you know, as I often do as I'm writing this, I'm like, how do I encourage us to embrace, I don't know even what the right word is, to embrace or to be willing to suffer more. And I could try to paint us a great picture of suffering. I could give us great examples, but I think the main way or reason that you're well, gonna be willing to suffer more is if you love people. That's why Paul suffered. Paul suffered because he loved people. Like, went to the dentist a couple weeks ago and uh, one of the hygienists there told me, I mean, my dentist didn't tell me this, but one of my hygienists said, hey, um, Dr. So-and-so, the dentist, do you know that he gave one of his kidneys to a patient? My first thought was, does he know he only gets two of those? <laughs> oh yeah, and he used to do a lot of Ironmans, but he can't do Ironmans now anymore because he gave away one of his kidneys. I'm like, was his patient his mom? <laughs> was it his sister? Was it one of his kids? He loved his patient, I don't know. That's all I know. How do I know that? Because he was willing to suffer and sacrifice for them. I knew a dad whose um, 
son got type 1 diabetes in the beginning of high school. Some of you have type 1 diabetes or you know someone who has it and it's just like, it's just like, well, chronic illness for you now. And his son had to figure out how to do the whole, you know, poking your hand and counting your carbs and, you know, you're insulin dependent for the rest of your life. And I was talking to the dad when he found out that his son had type 1 diabetes and he said, I wish I could take it from him. I wish if I could, if there was a button I could press, I would have it instead of him. That's love. Love is a willingness to suffer. We have to be willing to suffer. See, the Bible speaks of suffering on three levels. The Bible speaks of deserved suffering. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Deserved suffering is when we suffer because of our sin. And that's the hardest suffering on people psychologically. Because you'll wake up at two in the morning and you'll go, oh, my life and my family is in this mess because of me and the foolish decisions I made. And it's hard to forgive yourself. And you can, that's a whole other sermon, but there's grace for that. There's a second type of suffering, which is innocent suffering, right? And this is, if you haven't heard, Tim Keller, the great Tim Keller, um, God bless him, you know, he died this week. He was a very famous well-known pastor and he died of pancreatic, stage four pancreatic cancer. That's suffering just because Tim Keller didn't do anything wrong. It's suffering because we live in a sinful, broken world. And sometimes, and this is my observation of 15 years of pastoral ministry, sometimes the worst things happen to the best people. It's called innocent suffering. It's I'm just suffering because the world is broken and Romans 8 says the whole creation groans and sometimes some of the godliest people groan under the sufferings. But Paul's not talking about deserved suffering or innocent suffering. He's talking about a third category, which is missional suffering, which is the suffering we go through as we bring the gospel to other people and tell them about their sin. Do you know how we got here? Like, it's 2023 and there's 516 church buildings in Winston-Salem alone, and all things considered, we're able to worship freely. It's like, do you know how we got here? Because from the Bible's perspective, we are the ends of the earth. When you read the verses, it's like, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's us. I mean, there's more places to go, but we're the ends of the earth. And you go, how did we get from 12 apostles to a billion people? Do you know the answer? Suffering. That's it. The way the gospel breaks through into a new area is always suffering. So one of our desires is one day, and we hope to do this, would be to plant a church in East Winston. We'd love to plant an autonomous church and for it to be a multiplying church and for it to meet the felt and forever needs of East Winston. But you know what I think about when I think about planting a church in East Winston? Suffering. If you're really gonna do it. Because the pastor's gonna have to live there. And so are a lot of people. And the problems of East Winston are gonna have to become our problems. I know a guy and he planted in downtown Atlanta. He's got six kids, moved to downtown Atlanta. And then he, wherever he lived, he was planting this church in the worst part of Atlanta. And then he sent his kids, all six of them, to the public schools in the worst part of Atlanta. We're not saying you have to do this, but I'm just telling you what he did. And we're all sitting there, we're all these young church planters like sitting at his feet going, why did you do that? And he said, because I realized until the problems of the people around me became my problems, I wouldn't care. How are we going to reach? You know, everywhere left, if some of you know about this, what are called unreached people groups. They're the people who've yet to hear about Jesus. They have no Bible, no building, no believer. That's how you can think about an unreached people group. Guess what? They're so hard to reach because it takes, any, why haven't they been reached yet? Do you know why? Because it just takes so much suffering. 
you have to love them so much and you have to be willing to suffer so much. Bringing the gospel to Saudi Arabia, to Afghanistan, to any of the stands, to North Korea, to bring the gospel, the amount of suffering you will have to go through. But let me just tell you, that's the only way. I'm not trying to make myself the hero of my own story here, but I did college ministry for 10 years, and here's what I realized. To, this is very, hopefully this brings it down for all of us. To bring the gospel to the college campus, there's no shortcut to suffering, zero. If I was gonna bring the gospel to the college campus, not just me, anybody, what do I have to do? I have to work a night job. I didn't wanna do that. I have to go raise my own money. I didn't wanna do that. I have to be misunderstood and made fun of by 18 to 22 year olds who think what I'm doing is ridiculous. I had to eat cafeteria food. <laughs> There's no other way. There's no shortcut. When you go to people because they can't come to you, it's all suffering. And one of my favorite things that would happen because I'd see all these guys come to faith in Christ is it would take six months or a year or two and they would go, that's why you were in my dorm. That's why you came to the cafeteria. And it's like, yes, man, I loved you before you even knew it. And I came to you, and you're right, I did make some sacrificial decisions to reach you. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the great motivation. Where does he get this from? Well, Jesus was willing to suffer for us because he loved us. First, we need a theology of place. God's placed us. Second, we need a theology of suffering. Third, we need a theology of grace. Look at me at verse three, or verse two, I'm sorry, verse two. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, what? Grace is something I steward? That was given to me for you. Do you see that? I steward grace, and grace is given to me, and I'm not to be a cul-de-sac for grace, I'm to be a conduit and catalyst for grace. Do you get that? Well, stewardship's a big theme, guys. Hopefully you know that, I talk about that here, like there's two themes in the Bible. Stewardship and salvation, right? And that's gonna be when you die, those are the two questions. I'm giving you the final exam before you get there, okay? The, the, the two questions are a stewardship question and a salvation question. The salvation question is what did you do with my son? And the stewardship question is what did you do with my stuff? And here Paul goes, hey guys, listen. He says, this is what a missionary does. A missionary mindset always says this, how am I doing at stewarding God's grace? Here, what does that mean? You can waste God's grace. It's like, I don't know how that works, but you can. What? That, what, what <laughs> Why would you be told to steward? What do you, why do you steward things? You steward things so that you don't waste them. You steward things so that you can leverage them, so that you can invest them, so that you can multiply them, so that you can, here's the principle of stewardship. I steward so I can share, that's it. This is why people who don't understand stewardship cannot be generous in general. It's like, well, I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses and I don't understand compounding interest and I'm upside down on my house and Okay, you need stewardship before you can share. Paul's saying we steward the grace of God. Now that's interesting. Now he's not talking about the forgiving grace of God. The forgiving grace of God is the grace of God that we tend to think of. The forgiving grace of God is like, well, you messed up and you sinned and ask God for forgiveness and he'll forgive you. That's the forgiving grace of God and thank God for it. I'm not making light of it. But there's the transforming, empowering, enabling grace of God. That's why he said it's a power that works in him. So here's a way to think about it. If you are lazy and slothful and you're yelling at your kids and you're laying on the couch and you're watching you know, season you know, six of Breaking Bad again, okay? And you're like, what am I doing with my life? And I, at the end of the day, you feel really guilty and you go, oh my goodness, God, forgive me for wasting my whole day. That's the forgiving grace of God and it'll be there. 
But the grace of God was there seven hours ago for you to get off the couch. That's the transforming grace of God. How do we get access to the grace of God? Isn't that what you want? Christ bought it. It's free, that's what grace is. It's undeserved, that's what grace is. How do we get access to it? Through the means of grace. That's the spiritual disciplines. Christians called the spiritual disciplines the means of grace. Why does Paul start Ephesians and every one of his letters with grace to you? Because he believes that when he's writing the Bible, the grace of God is coming. I don't fully understand how it, here's what I want you to know, grace is real. It's not ethereal, it's like a real thing. And it can come to you, it's talked about in the Bible as like an energy or a power that God gives you. It's the supernatural strength to do what God has said. And there's something that happens when you read the Bible and you believe it, that you receive the grace of God. You can receive the grace of God by just asking for it. The Bible says he gives greater grace to the humble. There's more grace available. And sometimes grace shows up as another person. Sometimes the grace of God is a person in your life that God places to help you get to that next place. What I love about Paul is he says, the grace of God is given to me for you. We'll get more into this in chapter four, but God gives us grace for other people. You need to go to God for grace so you can give that grace to your spouse. You need to go to God for grace so you can give that grace to your kids. You need to go to God for grace so you can give even, if you're wise enough, you could give grace to your enemies. We have to understand place, we have to understand suffering, we have to understand grace, and we have to understand the gospel. Let me show you here, this is the fourth one here. Verse three, how the mystery, this is what we're gonna focus on, the mystery, okay? Paul calls the gospel a mystery, I'll explain this. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Paul says, guys, I didn't make this up, I didn't invent this, I didn't discover, it was revealed to me. Here's what he says. As I have written briefly, so it's revealed to me and I write it down. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into, there it is again, the mystery of Christ. We'll talk about what that is. Which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, what is a mystery? Now, we think of a mystery, we think, tend to think of something I can't understand. That's what, like, how we think of mysteries. Like, hey, it's a mystery. I don't know how it all works together. We use the word mystery as like, it's incomprehensible and it's undiscoverable and it's inexplainable and that is exactly not how the Bible uses the word mystery. In fact, a lot of translations will translate this word mystery secret. And that's probably a better translation because here's what a mystery is every time it's used, and by the way, Paul uses this word 27 times in the New Testament. It's something we did not know and we now know. It's something that we could never have discovered but has now been revealed. It's something that was not clear in the Old Testament, it was concealed in promises and prophecies and types and all of that, and now it's been revealed in the New Testament. And Paul was so excited about this. He's like, guys, listen. He's like, it's the mystery of Christ. Now, what is the mystery of Christ? It's the gospel. Now, to be clear, every time, because you'll see this word used different times, when Paul's talking about the mystery, when you, this will be a kind of a lens to understand the New Testament, because you'll see it all over his epistles. It always refers to either the entire gospel message or a result or new reality because of that message. So here, if we're getting real technical, he's saying, guys, let me tell you the mystery. He's like, the mystery is that the Jews and Gentiles would be brought together. 
and the Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become Christians. And God's not saving people two different ways and creating two different communities. God had one plan and one person for whom he was going to save everybody through. And so here's what Paul basically says, guys. He says, I'm so excited because my job is to reveal what God has revealed. And that's the missionary mindset. The missionary mindset is that we are not God's editors, we are God's messengers. And all we're supposed to do is to say to other people what God has said. Because I told you this before, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, that famous preacher, he said, man's greatest problem is not that he's a sinner. It's not that he's going to hell. It's not that he has the wrath of God on him. Man's greatest problem is he does not know these things. Theologically speaking, man's greatest problem is his ignorance. And we are part of helping people no longer be ignorant by letting them know what God has said. Now, here's our problem. Paul, all Paul wanted to do, and he suffered greatly for it, is Paul said, all I want to do is reveal to other people what's been concealed for far too long. I mean, the language, by the way, is like it has to be revealed. Like it was concealed. It's like it's time to let the lid off and let it out. And here's the problem with us, if we're honest. Most of us, we're not revealing to others what God has revealed. In fact, we're not just, I mean, that would be bad enough. It's like, hey, listen, we're, you're not revealing to others what you know, you, you know, God's revealed to you through the, through the Bible. Most of us are probably, if you watch yourself, and you have to watch yourself like a stranger, like you don't know yourself, like watch how you act. See how many times you don't only not reveal, but you intentionally conceal your Christian faith, your Christian beliefs, and what you know God said about something. Why do we do that? Well, in large part, it goes back to the second point. We're afraid to suffer. For many of you, there are two people at work who know you're a Christian. You and Jesus, okay? Here's a principle of revealing and concealing, okay? That is very true. You'll know this right away. The longer you conceal, the harder it is to reveal. If you got to know your neighbors and it's like, well, we've known them forever and we're our classmates or coworkers or it doesn't, you know, anybody that you know, if you're like, oh, well, we talked about every Netflix show we liked and we talked about every sports team we liked and we were over their house and they were over our house and man, we've been for three years and I've never ever told them anything. My encouragement would begin to reveal early so that it becomes a pattern and part of who you are with that person. I'm just somebody who talks about my Christian faith in, in normal, natural ways, and I talk about God. What I want to do is I'm trying to reveal, not conceal. I've got a friend who's great at this, and he works for a big company here in Winston. He just decided I'm going to be explicitly Christian. In fact, every, every week he shows up at our community group, and he goes, guys, it's really cool. I've just started to just tell everybody I've got community group on Tuesday nights, and they've asked me a lot of questions about it. I just want people to know, in the same way they might know my kids have a soccer game, my kids play soccer, I want them to know community group's a huge part of my life because I love the local church. He said, I'm having all these new conversations. Why? Because he chose to reveal instead of conceal. We need a theology of place. We need a theology of suffering. We need a theology of grace. We need a theology of the gospel and evangelism. This is all the missionary mindset. We need a theology of ourselves. How do I understand myself? Paul tells us, he helps us. Let's look here at verse... Eight, verse seven, I'm sorry, here's what it says. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given me by the working of his power. There's, there's, when you ha- um, become a Christian, you get a new relationship with God and a new power. It's called grace. But, but this is interesting, verse 8. Here's the effect grace has on a person's self-image. To me, though I am the very least, interesting, he makes up a word. In Greek, he makes up a word. It's literally leaster. Or less than the least. That's what he's saying. Look here. To me, though I'm the leaster, I'm the very least, I'm the less than the least of all the saints, this grace has been given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul, you really, do you really think you're the least of the saints? Is Paul just doing like that hyperbole thing that we sometimes do? Or is, is Paul like, is he doing that false humility thing that we're so good at doing? You ever done that before where you say to somebody, you know, <laughs> I'm not very good at, and you say something you're like, and you're thinking in your mind, please tell me I am good at it. That's not what Paul's doing. Here's what's interesting about Paul. Uh, the reason God saved Paul is because at different times in Paul's life, Paul was the best, and at another time in Paul's life, Paul was the worst. And God wanted to communicate forever to people that whether you think you're the best or you're the worst, I can save you. If you go to Philippians 3, you don't need to go there now. If you went there with your community group, Paul goes, if you want to play the who's the gooder game, who's better, I win. You want to play the who's done more religious rituals, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You want to do who's more Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to do who's from the better family, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. You want to do who's done more moral effort, uh, according to the law, I was faultless and blameless. So if you want to play the game of who's more religious and who's a better person, I win every time. Paul learned he had to repent of his goodness. Some of you have to do that. You can, some people repent, need to repent of their badness. Some people need to repent of their goodness. Some people need to repent of their rebellion. Some people need to repent of their religion. But then, in a later time in Paul's life, he says, I'm the worst. Paul talks about this often. Paul felt, now he knew the grace of God, and so he could forgive himself, and he knew God forgave him. But Paul never got over that he was a persecutor and a blasphemer of the church. He mentions it on multiple accounts. On one of his accounts, he said, I made other people blaspheme God. Some commentators think maybe that was the darkest moment of his life when he looks back. I was the kind of person, not only who blasphemed God, I made other people renounce their faith before I killed them. If you wanna play the game of who's the worst, Paul wins. If you wanna play the game of who's the best, Paul wins. He needs the grace of God. On your best day, you still need the grace of God. On your worst day, you're not outside of the grace of God. But Paul says something interesting. He says he's the least of all the saints. Now, Paul writes Ephesians in the middle of his ministry. The first letter that we have from Paul in your New Testament is the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the first time Paul tells us about himself. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, guys, I need to tell you something. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. And you might go, oh, we feel so sorry for you, Paul. The least of all the apostles. It's only 12. They wrote scripture and saw Jesus face to face. I mean, it doesn't sound, like, uh, doesn't sound like a bad deal. Then Paul gets to Ephesians. Ephesians is right in the middle of his ministry, and he writes, I'm the least of all the saints. What's he saying? I'm this most sinful person I know, and that should be true of all of us. Because I don't know anybody else's inward thoughts. I know my inward thoughts. I know my inward motivations. I know that my motives are always, I don't know if I've had a pure motive in my whole life. Purely, poor, 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 pure motive, excuse me. But then in, in, in 1 Timothy 1, which is one of Paul's last letters, he wrote, this statement is true. Christ came to save sinners of who I am the chief. Do you see that across time, people notice this, that Paul's view of himself 
goes to the place where across time he sees himself more and more as a sinner in need of God's grace. That's what spiritual maturity is. Now, we normally think the opposite. We're like, no, 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 no. Like, the longer I'm a Christian, like, I, I shouldn't be struggling with these temptations anymore, and there's certain sins that I just don't do anymore. And I've got all this godly character, and I'm like the, a godlier version of myself, and I'm like more like Jesus, and all that's true. But see, what happens when you become a Christian is you realize God is holy, and you are sinful. And we all realize that on a, we don't even realize how small of a view of both those we have. Like, can a seven-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, whatever, can they come to faith in Christ? Yes, I believe that can happen. But their view of sin is going to be so small. Right? What'd you do? I, 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 you know, I was mean to my brother and I didn't obey my parents. It's like, well, you're eight, so I guess that's the biggest thing in your life right now. It's like, well, wait till you get married. Wait till you hit puberty. Wait till you start making money. Wait till you have kids. Wait till you suffer. We've all had that experience. And you're like, dude, I'm like more sinful than I even knew. And then at the same time, you're learning about God and you're like, wow, I've got all this. Like you reading Ephesians 1 and you're realizing how big God is. And, and what happens is you have this massive view of God and you have this you know, view of yourself as sinner. And so across time, you see there's a bigger gap between you and God. And what happens? The cross gets bigger in your life. And you recognize that, and you can say without any kind of false humility, I need more Jesus, I need Jesus more today than I did when I first became a Christian. And I understand myself as even more sinful at 38 than I did when I was 16. We need a new view of ourselves. We need a new view of our place, of suffering, of grace. Finally, we need to love the church. I wanna show you how Paul ends here. Look here. We need a new view of the church. Here's what he says, verse nine, and to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan? So Paul's like, okay, I told you guys, Ephesians is deep. He's like, guys, I'm gonna take you real deep again, okay? We're gonna go back into the eternal plan of God and, and how he wanted to reveal this mystery. Look what he says. Okay, here he goes. And to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? It's like, what are you about to tell me, Paul? So what was God's plan to get this mystery out to everybody that's been hidden in him for ages? Look, who created all things? Look, so that through the church, do you see that? How do you think of the church? Look what it says here. So through the church, the manifold, literally multicolored, multilayered, multifaceted. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I want everyone to see even the seen and unseen realm, even angels and demons. I want them to see this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul says, God had this massive plan to reach the world and to make the mystery of himself known. And he decided to do it through the church. Now, how do people think about the church today? A building? Sadly, it's like, oh yeah, steeples and stained glass. That's the church, you know? Or I know what, I know what the church is. It's the most boring hour of my week that I don't go to anymore. Or if you're a little more sophisticated, oh, I get it, Kyle. I know what the church is. It's a nonprofit. It's a great nonprofit that does a lot of meets, a lot of needs in the city. It's like, <laughs> Paul's like, guys, wake up. Paul's like, the most important institution on earth is the church. It's more important than the U.S. government. Whatever you think is important, it's way more important than that. Now, again, 
There's the universal church and there's the local church, right? The universal church is invisible and it's every person who has ever believed or ever will believe. So in the universal church, it's like there's C.S. Lewis and if the Lord tarries, there's like some person who will be you know, born in a hundred years that's gonna believe, that's the universal church. It's every person who's ever believed or will believe and it's invisible, we can't see it all at once. That's not the main way the Bible talks about the church, although that, that is a way and that's mentioned. The main way the Bible talks about the church is the local church, which is a visible gathering of believers. And there is nothing more powerful than a local church when it's working the way God wants it to work. Do you see it says that it's through the church the manifold wisdom of God will be seen. And I know what you think when you read it, right? We think like the church, like a bunch of just like sinners like us. You, you can almost hear all the critiques of the church, right? Like, oh yeah, the, you, you're talking about the hypocritical church? That church? It's like, yeah, God actually is gonna be more glorified by working through sinful people like us somehow. We're gonna get to heaven and we're gonna watch the film or however it works and it's gonna be millions of years of story after story after story after story of the progress of the gospel through the church and we're gonna see I cannot believe that God worked through jars of clay like us. I can't believe that God hit a straight shot with a crooked stick like that. That's amazing. Guys, I'm just telling you the local church, and most of you probably already know this. I just want to tell you, it's so special. There is nothing like it. When I just look at even just the basic church calendar for across a month or two, I'm like, there's nothing like the local church. It's like, okay, in a couple weeks, let's just, let's just go baptize a bunch of new believers and celebrate that as a church. Great. Check that off, okay. And then how about all the new families with all their new kids, we'll bless them and commission those parents as they start their journeys. And then someone's just outside after the service, hey, we're getting married, can we help? Can you guys help us get married? You got it. And then we're walking with someone else as they're dying. And then we're sending people all over the world. This week I had a missionary back from Turkey and I'm investing in them. While yesterday I get a text and one of our college students is in London at Thomas West Church. While last week we sent three or two or three girls to Mumbai for the summer, it's like, we are not messing around. While Monday night we gathered here to pray for every age and stage in our church. While we have 450 kids next door, that's the next generation that we're investing in. It's like, get it. Paul's saying, get it and get in. The local church should be your favorite community and your favorite club. Whenever someone's like, you know what, we're, oh, we're going, my daughter's going to the University of Michigan, you know, I hope there's a good church there. It's like, backwards, backwards. Church is most important community, not education. Church is more important than your workplace. Church is more important than your country club. Church is more important than your goofy kickball team. Way more important. And it needs to show up that way because if not, you're not part of God's plan and what he's doing in the world. And that's why we're like, get in, get connected. Paul ends in verse 13 by encouraging us. Look what he says. He says this. So I ask you, in light of how God's working through the church, not to lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't get burned out. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering. I know you're hearing that I'm in prison. I don't want you to get discouraged. He says this, for which is your glory? 
What does that mean, Paul? Paul, why do you make it so hard on us? Why do you say things that we don't understand? What do you mean your suffering is for your glory? Here's what he's saying. It's working and we're winning. That's what he's saying. It's working. There's purpose in all of this. Look, you're believing. Look, a letter is coming to you. Look, God is moving in my life even while I'm in prison. It's working and we're winning. A couple nights ago, my family and I, we went to the first, for us, our first ever Wake Forest baseball game. And I thought, well, this isn't gonna be very crowded. They're good this year, but this won't be very crowded. And so we showed up and I get there and there's just people everywhere. And we can't park in this parking lot, that's full, and this, this parking lot's full. And they're, go down to the Coliseum and I'm going all the way down the Coliseum and I'm just seeing people and people and people and people. And we get inside and they make an announcement. This is the greatest attended, highest attended Wake Forest baseball game in history. And I said to the guy next to me, it's because we're winning. There's, no, there's nothing that builds momentum. There's nothing that encourages like winning. Paul's saying, guys, it's working. You're believing. I'm in prison. God's using me. It's working and we're winning. Paul's like, look, guys, suffering's all part of the plan. Jesus suffered for us, so why do we have to suffer? Because there's something that happens when we're willing to suffer that it powerfully authenticates the gospel. That you've got a nice big house and your life's easy and everything's great and your car's awesome and God has just blessed you. It's like, no one's impressed by that. That's what the world wants. When through suffering, you're able to say, God is good. Or even, I'm doing this because I love you and I want to reach you and Jesus means a lot to me and so I'm, you mean a lot to me. Like there's this missionary story I love. It's a true story of this missionary and he's a brand new believer. He's out in some village in the middle of nowhere and he's like, I got to reach the next village. He just comes to Jesus and he says, I got to reach the next village, but it's like 30 miles away and he's too poor to afford shoes. And he's like, what am I gonna do? I gotta get there, but I can't afford shoes and I need to reach people for Jesus. And so he says, well, I'll go anyway. So he doesn't have shoes and he, he goes about 30 some miles running, walking all this. And he gets to this new village and he sees the tribe there and he gathers them around and he tells them about Jesus and they laugh at him. They mock him and they make fun of him. He's so discouraged. He, they see him walk away and he's so discouraged, he falls asleep under a tree. And he wakes up, he doesn't know if it was an hour later or two hours later, he wakes up and there's the whole tribe standing around him. And they said, hey, after you preached to us, we saw that you fell asleep under the tree and we realized, wow, you must have came from a long way because you could barely stand. And he said, and then we came over here and we saw your feet are badly bruised. And we realized you came a long distance to share this message with us and we'd like to hear it again. There is something that authenticates the gospel and it's our willingness to suffer, mostly in America, being misunderstood. And I'm willing to do that because I love Jesus, I love you, he suffered for me and I believe it's working and we're winning. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to build this type of church, Lord. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a church here. We're trying to be the church. And it's very difficult to actually live the radical flavor of Christianity that the Apostle Paul is the ideal of. So would you help us, Lord? Would you wake us up? It's like, this is where we are. This is why I have the job I have or the neighborhood I live in. It's like, Lord, would you help us to stop trying to get to the next thing and be where we are for Jesus? Lord, would you help us be willing to suffer? Paul begins and ends with suffering. 
Lord, we, we, don't wanna, we don't wanna suffer, we admit that. We wanna love people and be willing to suffer because Jesus, you suffered for us. Lord, would we steward grace? Would we not be stingy with your grace? Would we say, I want it so I can give it to other people. My spouse needs it, my kids need it, my friends need it, my enemies need it, Lord. Lord, would you help us love the church? We're confused. Christians are confused about the church. Americans are confused about the church. The church is how we connect our lives to your global and eternal purposes, Lord. May, you, may we see and may the world see your manifold wisdom as you work through the church in the world, Lord, and as you work through this local church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.